Thank you so much for checking out the Connect Church podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired by this week's sermon. So let's jump right in and check out this week's message. We had a great time. Y'all don't know this, but today you have braved what is going to be the busiest of days out on the road in all of the year. More people are going home today than at any point in the entire year and y'all have braved it to come to church. Give yourself a hand this morning. Hey, that's a way to brave it and come out. Now listen, I got a question. How, how many of you guys ate too much for Thanksgiving? Could you raise your hand? I, I see you. We're preaching on gluttony today and um, no, we're not. Uh, anyway, we're gonna, uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna continue in scripture today, but I'm gonna tell you something. It is just good uh, to be able just to get away for a few days from the mundane and the normal and to celebrate even with some crazy family Thanksgiving. We are thankful for you. Excited about what God's gonna do over the next few weeks in our new series entitled A Vintage Christmas. And here's our heartbeat, you ready? That we are gonna take a look at the Christmas story through the lens, through the eyes of the Old Testament. Today, and we're gonna celebrate this truth today. You ready? The wait is over. The wait is over. Look at your neighbor and tell them the wait is over. That doesn't mean my sermon's done, but that's the whole point of the message, okay? So hey, the wait is over. I love the word vintage. Uh, If you were to look at its definition, here's what it would mean. You ready? As a noun, it speaks to a superior wine that finds itself at a particular date and time in history that is celebrated by those who enjoy wine. But as a adjective, the word vintage carries with it something that is dated from the past or simply things of old. Things of old. Come to think of it, my mom celebrated her 60th birthday on Friday. She's vintage. Right, like like she is now vintage. I love, it's a cool word. My mom is a vintage mom. And for those of you who are 60 and above, you're like, what? Listen, some things just get better with time, like you, right? And so we celebrate that word. I love the word vintage, and it's a pretty cool word. Now, oftentimes in our conversation of Christmas, we begin with the gospel accounts of the birth of Jesus, right? The very first Christmas. But what if I were to tell you that the story of Christmas began long before that cold starry night in Bethlehem, long before the wise men came with their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What if I were to tell you that long before a child was wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, that we would find the first glimpses of Christmas, the first flickers of Christmas light in the Bible? Now, before we start pouring over the Old Testament, I want us to talk about a couple of vintage Christmas traditions. And one that I, listen, I cannot understand why this is a Christmas tradition. You ready? Fruitcake. What is it? Why is it? I, l- listen, I, <laughs> I, I, of all the things that we grew up doing around, I love everyone except for this one. Except for this one. And, and here's some reason why. First of all, some of y'all like fruitcake, and it's okay. If you like fruitcake, would you just raise your hand across the room? Just keep your hands raised. Security, could you escort them out? 
help them find a church home for this Christmas season. No, hey, no, even the cross covers that, okay? And so we're grateful for that. But here's the deal, I, and, and I wanna open up to you a little bit. This is gonna shock you. I love cake. I've never had a bad experience with cake in my life until this one. You know, honestly, we love Christmas traditions and, and we're gonna talk about thousands of years ago, the Christmas. This cake tastes like it was made a thousand years ago. That's the flavor it comes. I, I don't understand the Christmas tradition of a fruit cake. It's offensive to me, right? But there are some Christmas traditions that I do absolutely love. I love the Christmas tradition that dates back centuries centuries and that is the lighting of candles and putting them into the windowsill of a home we still see glimpses of that today oftentimes not with real candles but artificial candles and you'll see those old white farmhouses with with candles all adorning their windows and i absolutely love that centuries and centuries of celebrating christmas by those candles symbolizing the light of the world has come here's what i love about it you ready Hey, can y'all dim the lights for me back there? This is a special candle. It commemorates Frozen 2 at the movie theaters. Now listen, one of my favorite things about candles is, do you see the, the flames are dancing a little bit? I love watching flickers of light in the darkness. And imagine this long before electricity, houses as the sun would go down were darkened. And yet this light would light up an entire window frame, could light up an entire room. I love Christmas lights. I love candles that are left in window seals. But here's the question. Where was the first flicker of Christmas light? The Christmas story in the Bible you see, here's what we begin to see throughout Scripture that, scripture, that Christmas was more than just an event that took place in the Gospels. Its traditions date back generations into the Old Testament. Catch this, you ready? What the people of God looked forward to in anticipation in the Old Testament, we look back on with an adoring appreciation. This event called Christmas. Where did Christmas begin? If not in the New Testament with the Gospels, did it begin with the prophecies of the prophets in the Old Testament, like Isaiah or Micah? I think we have to go even further back. Maybe in the time of King David in his Psalms. Is that where we see the first flicker of Christmas light? I'm afraid we have to go even further back. Was it dreamed of by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Is that the first flicker of Christmas light in Scripture? And I'm afraid it is not. Christmas's traditions, their foundations, were first laid not that manger in Bethlehem, not in the manger of Bethlehem, but in the Garden of Eden. Not via the pronouncement of an angel, but with the very voice of God some 4,000 years before the very first Christmas. Okay, there was a flicker of light that we find all the way back in the Garden of Eden. A flicker of Christmas 
light. Let me explain to you. Genesis 1.1 is pretty clear that God created the heavens and the earth. And in the creation narrative, we find that God created Adam and Eve. And so he placed them in a garden, a garden by the name of Eden. Now, this garden was the place to live at the time. It had everything they could need. There was no sin there. There was no death, no dying, no disease. There was no separation from God. And they were in paradise. But God had said, hey, listen, there's one tree set up there in the middle. The tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. Don't touch it. Because the day that you do is the day you'll experience something you have yet to see and you have yet to know. And that is death. Don't touch it. Now, you and I know how the story goes, right? Like, we have enough of Adam and Eve to know exactly what's fixing to happen here, right? When somebody tells you not to touch something, you ever do that? I mean, I just want to touch it. You, you, you want me to, just tell me not to and I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. We have enough Adam and Eve in us to know how the story unfolds. A serpent enters the scene of this story. We understand him to be Satan himself. He comes up to Eve and says, what did he say? Surely you will die. Now listen, he doesn't want you to touch it because you'll be like him. He doesn't want you to touch it, but I'm telling you, you eat of it and surely you will not die. And at that temptation, we find that both Adam and Eve in a moment of selfishness, in a moment of rebellion, in a moment of defiance against God, Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree that God told them not to. How many times have you read that during Christmas time to your children? Right? It's, it's a good story. It's a good narrative. But what does this have to do with Christmas if anything at all. You see, here's what we're gonna find in just a moment. In just a couple of chapters, we are gonna see the first flicker of light of the Christmas story. If you have your Bibles in Genesis chapter three, I want us to look real quick at verse 11. As God begins to confront Adam and Eve after they have eaten of the tree that God said for them not to, they find themselves hiding from God and a newfound nakedness that they never knew they had. And here God begins to question them, where are you? What have you done? And watch this. He asked this question, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to? It's not that God was seeking an answer. He was wanting them to understand the gravity of what had taken place. And at this question, at this act of great rebellion, of sin, of treason against God, of defiance against his word, we see the great tragedy of the moment. Now a world once free from sin and death now lay in bondage to sin's curse, to death's grip. Think of it for a moment. You can trace every sin to this moment in history, every death began here. Every disease was birthed here in this Genesis narrative at their sin. Every shame made its debut here in the garden. Guilt was first realized here. 
Every anxiety that you and I wrestle with can find its beginnings here. Every broken heart was first broken here. Every disappointment started here. Every evil action found its genesis. At this scandalous day and night in the garden. Church, hear me. That is the why behind Christmas. Humanity was dying cursed by sin and needed help that it could not provide itself, a cure that mankind could not produce, a salvation that we could not earn. And so watch what begins to take place in verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, he begins to address the enemy. And watch his words, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. Hey, real quick, first of all, can I get an amen that snakes are the most cursed of all animals on the planet and the most likely to cause a person to curse at the very side of them, right? I, I mean, I hate snakes, but there's something more than just a hatred of snakes. Look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's an interchangeable word in the Hebrew. Um, bruise can also mean strike. So he shall strike your head and you shall strike his heel. You see the word enmity here paints the picture of two enemies who are engaged in a battle one against each other. But watch how God speaks. He says, between you. God is speaking to the serpent, the enemy of old, Satan, as he is referred to in Revelation 20, verse two. He begins to bring up a woman, though unnamed at this point, she is the mother of a son who will battle and ultimately destroy the enemy himself. I love the words here, offspring. Right, the plurality of this word speaks to groups of people and not just individuals. So here's the battle scene painted, you ready? First and foremost, we find a battle between offsprings. We find, as John 8, would so affectionately call them, the offspring of the devil are those who are ungodly and are known as children of the devil. Where we have the offspring of the woman who are those who are lovers of God who are children, sons, and the daughters of God. At the very moment of Adam and Eve's sin, the struggle began, the battle began between the ungodly and the godly, between those who love God and those who hate him, between those who seek after God and those who shun God. But we begin to see that this begins, this promise of God begins to get even more narrow. Watch as the scripture continues here. And that, oh man, I think I skipped it. Let me just read it to you. I skipped it for us um, for a second, but watch this. It gets even just a little bit more narrow. It says this, that he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, now watch it. Do you see the lights beginning to flicker? The first Christmas lights here in this text, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He, meaning her offspring, now watch this, was to be a son. He would be a son who would deal the fatal blow to the enemy. He would reverse the curse of sin. Now let's just unpack this a little bit. The enemy, Satan, 
will strike the heel of this son, bruising it, causing immense pain. But hear me, church, this is not a deadly blow to his body. It is a blow from which he will recover, better yet, he will resurrect from. But watch this. It's not true for the enemy. For the Bible tells us this, as we contrast these two blows, that the son, the savior, will crush the head of the serpent, which is beneath him. Hey, by the way, that's where he always is, beneath him. Dealing the serpent a fatal blow. And hear me, church, here's the good news. Here's the promise from which he will never recover, for which he will never rise above. You know what's amazing here in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, in this Genesis account, is we begin to see the first picture of the gospel, the first flicker of the light of the Christmas story. And here's the truth we begin to uncover, that Christmas is not just some packaged religious holiday, rather it is God's plan to rescue humanity. And that is the beauty of Christmas. And God would not accomplish this with a Christmas tree, but with a cross. Not with stockings that are full, hung by a chimney with care, but with an empty tomb just outside of Calvary. All the anticipation coming off this promise of God. In Genesis chapter three, verse 15. You know one of the greatest things about Christmas morning the anticipation of it. I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I am a very large 37-year-old kid. I, the minute Christmas is over, you know what I begin looking forward to? Christmas. I, I love Christmas. I, I remember this as a kid, don't you? The anticipation of going to sleep on Christmas Eve and, and Santa Claus coming through the night, just the anticipation of that Christmas morning. I see it in my own kids today. You probably see it in your kids or your grandkids. Man, I love the anticipation. Hey, by the way, I, I'm, I love Santa Claus, right? I found this in an article this week. Um, the four stages of a man's life. Number one, stage one, he believes in Santa Claus. Stage two, tragically, he doesn't believe in Santa Claus. Stage three, he is Santa Claus. And stage four, he looks like Santa Claus. Sadly, I'm heading towards stage four, and uh, it's, that's an offensive article. Anyway, listen, imagine the anticipation of Adam and Eve at the dawn of creation, who knew life before the curse of sin, tasting of sin the first time, knowing the death it is bringing, and hearing the very promise of God, of a savior who would save them from their sin and reverse the curse of sin. And not only would God bring a savior, it would be through their line. It would be a son of theirs. Imagine the, the anticipation of that first Christmas that Adam and Eve would look forward to, but who would it be? I can imagine the question in their mind, could it be Cain or Abel as they had sons? Could it be their, their two sons? But tragically, both Cain and Abel would fall victim and be destroyed by this curse of sin. Rather than victors over sin, they were both victims of sin. Sin that Cain welcomed into his heart and life. And that would ultimately destroy his brother Abel. 
But watch this in Genesis 4. As God would begin to provide, it says this, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For he said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. You remember the story, right? Man, Cain was jealous of his brother's offering and God's favor on him, and he took his brother's life. To Seth was also born, a son was born. He was called Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. What's amazing is, is if you're to read this phrase in Hebrew as it's written out, what you are gonna find here is that Eve cries out in great anticipation and excitement and in great hope that what God had promised in Genesis 3.15 was not destroyed by sin, but that God continued in his rescue plan. And we see that God does so through Seth. Hey, could the son be Seth? The promised one of Genesis 3, 15, the first flickers of light of the Christmas story. Well, we find through scripture that Seth would not be and could not be the savior. If not Abel, if not Seth, then surely the savior would be the man we find in Genesis chapter five by the name of of Noah, 10 generations from Adam to Noah, surely he would be the savior. In fact, listen to what his own dad says about him. Lamech, he says this, and they called his name Noah saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Hey guys, listen. Sounds a little bit like a savior, doesn't it? In fact, listen to his resume as inspired by God. Let's see if I can, oh, come on. There we go. These are the generations of Noah in Genesis 6, 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Hey, listen, I don't know what the resume of a savior looks like, but this looks pretty good. Could it be Noah here in Genesis chapter six? A man who was allowed to build the ark, survive the flood and repopulate the earth. Could he be the promised son? of Genesis 3.15. You know what, it really looks like it could be him. That is until he fell, eerily similar to Adam's story, in another garden, a vineyard garden, in Genesis 9.20. Also similar to Adam and the chosen nation after him, Noah crumbled in the face of temptation. Noah couldn't be the savior because he carried in him the curse of sin. He was destroyed and broken by sin. And what we begin to see is this question from the Old Testament. Was there anyone who could be victorious over the curse of sin. As you read the stories of the Bible, you begin to see characters who rise to the top and they are heroes in the word of God. But as you read their stories, what you begin to notice of these heroes that all of them have been tainted and corrupted by sin's curse. Sin's curse was alive and well. And Adam and Eve, and Cain, and Abel, and Seth, and Noah, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and Daniel, all throughout scripture. But when would God hold true to his promise? And here's what we quickly realize, you ready? 
that the Savior of the world, the son of Adam and Eve, who would reverse the curse of sin, would himself need to be freed from the curse of sin. Born without it. But how could that be? Generations had passed. 10 from Adam to Noah. And now we find ourselves in a place in scripture that 76 generations have come since Adam and Eve. And if you have your Bibles, will you turn to the gospel of Luke chapter one with me just for a moment. I love the gospel of Luke because as he introduces us to a man by the name of Jesus, he traces Jesus's lineage all the way back to Adam and Eve. And Luke tells the story of how this man named Jesus was born. And I have a question for you. Could this be the son promised in Genesis 3.15? Could Mary be the, the unnamed woman of Genesis 3.15? Let's check out scripture just for a moment. You ready? In verse 30 of the gospel of Luke, it says this, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. In the Old Testament, Jesus' name is Yahshua, meaning this, the Lord God saves. What's in a name? Verse 32, and he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, which by the way, David's Um, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now wait a second, could this be her? The woman whose son can defeat the enemy will crush his head. Who will reverse the curse of sin? And the angel answered her in some of the most beautiful of all writings. In scripture, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child born will be called Holy, the very Son of God. Could this child be the one? Could this child be the Savior of Genesis 3, 15? Luke answers with his gospel emphatically. Yes, this child is the promised one of Genesis 3, 15. And you ready, church? Here it is. You ready? In this scripture, in this account, here's the whole theme of today. The wait is over. Advent has taken place. The wait is over. Jesus has come. Since the days of Adam and Eve, humanity has longed for and looked forward to a savior who could save them from the, uh, the, the curse of sin, who could reverse such a curse and its effects. It would be 76 generations from Adam to Jesus. And what we find in scripture is that the wait is over. His birth was like none other through the will of God and through the womb of Mary. Adam and Eve's descendants. 
He alone could save mankind from the curse of sin because he himself was not cursed by sin. Yet we know his story. He willingly took our sins upon himself so that we might be saved. I'm reminded of Galatians 3, 13, which reminds the church that Jesus saved us from the curse by becoming the curse for us. Because as it is written, scripture says, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. The wait is over. The enemy was defeated at the birth of that child, at that child's death. And ultimately, when that child was brought back to life, Jesus alone can reverse the effects of sin's curse, which is death, by giving all of those who believe in him life and life to the full, as John 10, 10 reminds us. Church, the good news about Christmas, the good news that we see even in Genesis three fifteen is this, you ready? The wait is now over. What the people of God look forward to and anticipation of in the Old Testament we now look back on with adoration and appreciation. Yeah, I wanna close with this story. This past week, we celebrated in the life of our community three years since the Gatlinburg fires. The loss of property was devastating. The loss of life, an even greater tragedy. So many are still trying to rebuild, to put the pieces back together. So many of you are still trying to put some of the pieces back together from these fires. There was a story that emerged from the ashes of those events three years ago that caught my eye. A couple who lives in Alabama came up and began to vacation in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Now, real quick, I want to send my condolences out to Alabama fans today. Um, it, it's as if God sent a rain delay at the UT game so that we could flip, flip over and watch Alabama lose. And so we're praying for you guys. I'll fast until lunch for you. But anyway, we have a couple three years ago in from Alabama vacationing in Gatlinburg. And their story plays out like this, that they were awoken and told, hey, listen, all the words they heard from their room in Westgate, hey, you need to evacuate. So they grabbed a few things, they hopped on an elevator, they pushed the arrow down, and soon after, the electricity went out across the whole building. But who was in this elevator? You see this lady right here in the purple, this is Reba. This guy in the blue, that's her husband, Joe. Having no idea why the building was being evacuated, they now found themselves stuck in between two floors in an elevator that was going nowhere. They waited for a few minutes, and then they began to hear noises outside that sounded, that sounded terrifying. They began to feel heat, even penetrating through the elevator shaft. And they began to be terrified. Reba would call 911 on multiple occasions. The reception was bad. The 911 dispatchers were overloaded with calls. And finally, she would break through and, and multiple times she would talk to the dispatcher. And the dispatcher could hear um, that 
that things were not okay for this couple, that things were getting worse moment by moment by moment. At one point she said this, the elevator is on fire, we're burning. In the 911 logs you can hear that continuously she was praying and telling her husband, Joe, that she loved him and he was doing the same. They had already said their goodbyes to one another because this is her words. They didn't think that they would be rescued in time. The firefighters, knowing of their condition and how long they had been up there. Listen, Reba and Joe had been in that elevator nearly nine hours before firefighters were able to even access the area. In fact, when firefighters pulled up, this is what Westgate looked like. And somewhere in the midst of that mess was an elevator shaft. But would Reba and Joe even be alive? Nearly nine hours there. I can imagine the firefighters finally locating the elevator shaft, wondering, there's no way anyone really could still be alive in there, but doing what they do best, they didn't give up hope. They got their instruments and their tools. They went to the elevator shaft to where the elevator cart was and they began to open their doors and to their surprise, there lay Joe and Reba alive. Can you imagine with me just for a moment the anticipation, the excitement for Joe and Reba as they begin to hear off in the distance firefighters approaching the elevator shaft. God, I'm gonna tell you something, I'm terrified of elevators. If I'm staying anywhere in a hotel and it's on the first 10 floors, I walk up and down the stairs and I don't like walking, right? I just, elevators scare me to death. I cannot imagine the fear of being trapped in an elevator for nearly nine hours while the entire building around them was burning to the ground. Imagine the hope beginning to rise up as they heard instruments being pried and opening the doors that had entombed them, had encased them for so many hours. Imagine the dread and the misery giving away to light as it began to burst forth into that elevator cart as the firefighters opened the doors and they first laid their eyes on their saviors, the brave men and women who fought so courageously years ago to protect property and life. You know what's amazing? After eight hours, the wait was over. The rescue plan for Reba and Joe had been successful and they are alive and well today. I think of the anticipation of Christmas this rescue plan that God had enacted all the way back in Genesis 3, 15. And much like Joe and Reba, ever since the first sin had given birth there in the garden, all of us have been trapped on that elevator. All of us have seen this world devastated around us, burning to the ground. And the question is, is where's the rescue? And here comes the gospel of Luke. 
Here comes the Holy Spirit of God. This rescue plan dreamed up in Genesis 3.15 was now clothing himself in flesh and dwelling among us. He walked into our mess. He walked into our fire. And with his death, he pried off the grip of death off of each and every heart who would but just believe in him. And with his resurrection, he quenched the flames of the enemy himself. You see, church, we celebrate Christmas not as some packaged religious holiday, but as God's rescue plan for humanity. The wait is over. Hey, let me ask you this. Are you waiting for salvation? Hear me, the wait is over. Are you waiting to find victory over sin in your life? Wait no more. Are you waiting to find a love that is unconditional? Oh, friend, wait no more. Are you waiting to find forgiveness, to find peace and joy? Wait no more. Are you waiting to find hope and strength? What I see in Genesis 3.15 in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1 is this reminder that you have to wait no more. The wait is over. Not because Christmas is here, but because Christ has come as the one promised in Genesis 3.15. So Christian, you know what? I got a challenge for you. The wait is over, Christian. So stop waiting around. Let's work together proclaiming the good news, the gospel. And here's why. Two months ago, we came together and over a series of a few weeks, we wrote down the names of thousands of people who are far from God, but close to us. And while you and I know the truth of the gospel, that the wait is over, there are many still whose names are in that box who are still waiting. They're still waiting to know, does Jesus really work? Can Jesus really save me? Is the tomb really empty? Is this more than just a story? And you know what's amazing? That you and I are tapped to proclaim the Christmas story. That the Savior has come. Hear me, you ready? The names of those who are far from God, but maybe close to us. Hear me. They're trapped in the elevator. It's dark in there. And the whole world's crumbling around them. Their spiritual world is on fire. And you know what? They're waiting. They're waiting to see if there's a savior who can save them from the elevator they find themselves in. And you know the beauty of the gospel is that God sends you and I as the firemen, armed not with instruments, but armed with the gospel. And he calls us to share the gospel with the people in the elevator. 
And when we begin to love and serve them and share the gospel, it prize open the doors so they can see who he is and they can be rescued by Jesus. And so as we celebrate this promise coming true out of Genesis 3.15, this rescue plan being successful at the cross and the resurrection, we are reminded that as the entire world is singing our songs, that we have a message to share. We have a hope to give. We have a savior to introduce a world who is waiting to introduce them to. Here's the question. If you don't do it, who will? One of the things about that story is the brave firefighters, our emergency personnel, who ran into flames to save people. Guys, I'm gonna tell you something. God didn't just call pastors to do that. Every person Jesus has saved in this room, you are the firefighter. You're them. And if you don't go, I don't go, who will? How many people have we left in the elevator? I don't know about you, but I'm ready to get them. Thank you again for checking out our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date on our services. If you'd like to give to support our ministry, you can do that at our website. That's connectchurchpf.com. Hope you enjoyed and have a great week.